Oftentimes, we as Christians are not aware that Satan is actually hindering your attempt to not only draw close to God, but to be used by God, to be his hands and feet, to minister the gospel to people around you. On today's podcast, we're going to be diving into what that looks like and how we can overcome the temptations of Satan. So let's get into it. Well, hey there, my friends. Welcome to Stand Strong in the Word podcast. Jason Jimenez with you, as always. So blessed to be in the studio recording this episode as we continue our study in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I got to tell you, as I've been telling you guys for quite some time, that I have thoroughly enjoyed and have been majorly convicted going through this particular passage. As a minister of the gospel, we're all called as as children of God as followers of Jesus Christ, to be ministers of the gospel, to present God's love through Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, fulfilling the Great Commission. We're all called to do that. The question is, how are you doing that in your life? Not just looking at it in the sense of how many people have you led to Christ this year, or how many people are you discipling? Those certainly matter, and we need to be doing them. But how involved are you in the lives of people around you? I mean, just this morning was a great reminder of being with a brother who I don't know really that well, but immediately he and I just started talking about our faith. We just were not ashamed about it. And through that, you know, we both looked at each other was like, Hey, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ too. Jesus is my Lord and savior. And we started to develop a relationship and now we're looking to kind of build some community with one another and get some other brothers involved and that's a beautiful thing we don't go to the same church we're two different generations uh, two different ethnic groups but that is the beauty and the diversity of the family of God and I love that and the reason I bring that up is because as we look at the context of scripture today as we finish first Thessalonians chapter 2 we're going to be looking specifically at verses 17 through 20 and I want to draw your attention though uh back to the beginning and i typically do this if you're aware you've been listening to this podcast for quite some time we go back to the beginning to kind of do a recap as we finalize this chapter as we transition to a new one and if you recall the theme of this particular chapter is how to conduct yourself in ministry and that's why it's been so convicting for me because when i've evaluated paul's heart here And I hope that you have felt the same, my friends. But we are to offer thanksgiving for the ministry that God has given us. We are to be thankful for the people that God has called us to minister to. Now, I know that there will be those who are difficult. And they're going to be very trying and very demanding. And it's going to cost you a lot. And I wish I can say that every person that you started to have a relationship with or started a small group with or used to pray with that you're continuing that in some cases you whether it be geographically there's a distance and you move on to a new job or circumstance presents itself and and you're no longer with that person i get that and you get that as well that happens that's life but there's also the times when you encounter some conflict or you confront some particular sin. 
And as you conduct yourself as Christ would have you, and you're walking in step with the Holy Spirit, uh, you're going to rustle some feathers. You're going to make people feel uncomfortable. There's going to there's going to spark some jealousy that people have about the way that you live your life. And even when you have a ministry of exhortation, remember, that's not just going around complimenting people. It's recognizing that we are sinners and you who are mature in Christ, that it's not just calling it out, correcting people, but you do it in love, but you're exhorting them. You're, you're helping them be more like Jesus. And that could be painful for a lot of people. And I've told you guys this, and I'm going to tell you again as we're going to go through a recap real quickly to kind of highlight some of these things because some of this is a lost art. A lot of times we don't get this type of language or this type of heart from spiritual leaders. And I'm not saying they don't feel this way that Paul felt, but Paul expressed it. And sometimes we, we can think less of a spiritual leader because we don't hear their heart in a particular matter. And we can judge them. So if you're a pastor, I hope this helps you as well because we need to be more like Paul here. But when I look at this particular passage and you consider the landscape of where we're at as followers of Jesus Christ today, uh, there is not a lot of Christians who, because of superficiality, who take correction and do well in a ministry of exhortation because it's, um, it's hard. It requires a commitment, a dedication on their end. And they may start off thinking this is the right step for them. But if you've been in ministry for a while, meaning you've been volunteering in a particular class setting or you're a small group leader or you're a deacon elder, whatever the case may be, but you've been around the block a few times in the church world, you know what I mean, right? Perhaps maybe you were once that Christian. Maybe you're dealing with it right now. Somebody started off strong and then they have abandoned that ministry that you're leading, that you've been a part of. Maybe you invited them because they, uh, and they'll blame, right? They'll blame people, say they didn't conduct themselves well, a bunch of hypocrites, or I didn't really learn anything. They'll make excuses. But at the heart of it, they did not want to be under the direction and leadership of particular people. And we know that's a major problem today. So let's just recap in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 so we can better understand the situation here and the conflict and the suffering, right, that the early church was going through and how Paul was a model, he was an example to lead people to Christ. So when you, you and I go back to the first two verses, remember, there is suffering for Christ. So immediately, when you and I are conducting ourselves in ministry, how do we suffer? Right? I mean, that is so important because even as we saw Christ at the Sea of Galilee multiple times or on the Sermon on the Mount or outside the temple or in a synagogue, even though he was being betrayed, made fun of, challenged, even people sought to kill him in John 10 and elsewhere, he was above reproach. He was perfect. And you think, well, you know, he handled that very well. Find the fact that, you know, he turned over a couple tab tables in the temple, but he, again, Jesus, who is perfect, was showing righteous indignation because of what people are doing and taking advantage of people, his people that were going there to offer sacrifices. So that's justifiable. 
Jesus committed no sin, no wrong, right? But people look at that differently, but they're taking it out of context. But I submit to you, though, as you go through those storylines, indeed, that explain in part, right? We only have a fraction of the life of Jesus' public ministry, according to the Gospels. But when we see him being betrayed and suffering and having to endure the flogging, being stripped of his clothes, being placed a crown on his head, being crucified on a cross for six hours, did we see him deny his father? Do we see him curse his disciples? Do we see him make fun of the centurions and the Romans? Do we see him abandon and forsake his disciples and say, you're not worthy to be my followers? Did he condemn the, the, the criminals on the left and on his right? We see Christ suffer for you and for me. That's our example. And Paul was that to the church of Thessalonica. So much so, remember, he used the term shamefully treated. That Greek word described this internal battle that was caused by emotional anguish and spiritual attacks. So Paul faced intense opposition. He was humiliated by the Jews. They were attempting to disgrace him because he left his role as a Pharisee and came to this newfound faith known as Christianity. He dealt with conflict. That's where we get the word agony from. So there was this strenuous contesting that was going on. It took the it carries the idea from an activity that an athlete has to endure and has to go through severe agony in order to accomplish victory. So he's describing you guys what it takes as a Christian. So how are we conducting ourselves in the midst of suffering? You're going through a particular hard time in your life. There's agony. There is a contestment that you're faced with. There's conflict that you have to deal with. You may be being persecuted or maybe through cancel culture, you're being silenced. But what does your conduct look like? Your faith, the Bible says, should be, it should be refined. Well, then we transition to verses three through six and we talked about the approval that comes not from man, but it comes from God. And my friends, that right there I, I immediately separates the vast majority of people in the ministry. And remember, that goes for all of us. We're all ministers of the gospel if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. But Paul said that the genuineness of testing, knowing that which is good, comes from the approval of God. And so he said in verse 4, we don't please man, but we please God who tests our hearts. That Greek word to please God is Oresco, it means that we have a desire to please, to accommodate. So we make it our effort. And remember, Paul uses 17 times. So you guys, if you want to conduct yourself in ministry, you need to first and foremost be seeking to please God, not yourself. So much of these celebrity pastors, celebrity churches, it's about pleasing them. It's about feeding their selfish ambition. Romans 12, 10, that we are to show the affection and love for the brotherhood, and it says, and we are to outdo with one, outdo one another with good works, to serve one another. Well, celebrity pastors, they're not outdoing you. They're not shepherding you. I'm not saying it goes for all of them, but the vast majority, I will say, that is the case. They're not accommodating God in their life. But Paul was confident in his ministry that he was pleasing the Lord. God had entrusted him with a certain task 
and gave him gifts to use them, not to make money, to, to become famous, but to, to be approved by God and knowing that God in the end will vindicate him in his life. That is powerful, my friends. And then we transition into 7 through 11, and we see, do we care for the people that God has called us to minister to? Remember Paul used the term gentle. He was referencing it as an infant child. He uses terms like affectionately desirous, meaning he had a deep longing. He yearned to be with these people. And that's sad today when you look at a church world or you look at your own life. And I talked to so many Christians and I've talked about it on this podcast when, we're been, when we've been going through 1 Thessalonians 2. That's why we got to recap and talk about it again. Because so many of us are lonely. So many of us don't have confidants, people who are there they're thick and thin for us. And you got a lot of people, even marriages that they want to get out. And yet Paul was laboring and toiling. He was working day and night, we're told in verse 9. Taking on the burdens of these people because he cared for them. Performed his task joyfully. Paul, we know in 1 Timothy 4.10, he strove for godliness. And he worked harder than anybody around him. So I ask you, when you look at the ministry God has called you, what type of investment how devoted are you, not only to the teaching and preparation, maybe, maybe it's an organization that feeds the homeless, maybe it's, a, it's going outside the abortion mill, maybe it's trying to share the gospel on campus, maybe it's mission trips that you put together, maybe you're writing a book, maybe you put a blog together, maybe you put a podcast like this out there to teach people God's word. But the point is, are you working diligently to produce content that honors God? And, and through that, people should hear in your voice, in your writing, when you're out and about and you're serving, they should see how much you love Jesus. And that's what Paul demonstrates here in verses 7 through 11. So much so is he compared his ministry, you guys, to a father and a mother loving their children, nursing their children. Now, in one sense, you who are in ministry— small group, ministry in your home, ministry, maybe you're running a Bible study in your workplace. You are to demonstrate Christ to those people, right? But I also want you to consider for a moment, as we talked about this a few weeks back, the people that you're under. Do they, do they have an affectionate desire to be with you? Are they compelled to pursue a relationship with you and help you be grounded in your faith. And if you don't, my friends, you got to ask yourself, why is it because of you? Is it because of the leadership? Is it both and? And if that's the case, how can that get resolved? What type of meeting that do you need to have to confront these things, to talk about it openly so that you're not left out, that you're not abandoned, but that you together are pursuing the kingdom of God as the Bible tells us here in 1 Timothy, excuse me, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 11 and 12, where Paul exhorted each one of them to be encouraged and to charge and to walk in a manner worthy of God. So the point is, is how is your conduct walking worthy of God and how are people seeing that and how is it impacting their lives? And then last time we saw in verses 14 through 16, you have to be that example. 
You have to be an imitator of God. Remember, that word is a powerful word, mementes in Greek. It means to mimic or to imitate, but it goes deeper than that. It actually refers to an expert artisan that models and teaches a certain pattern of practice, right? So if you've ever shadowed somebody, we were at a restaurant recently and there was a new waitress who was shadowing, right? A veteran, somebody who's more experienced and just, they do that so they can teach them how to interact with customers, how to take people's orders, you know, how to serve, right? That's what a waitress, a waiter is supposed to do. They are a, a server there to be there to help the customer feel not just welcomed, but provide them what they need, what they're paying for. Well, how do you, how do you apply that to the Christian life? What kind of pattern, what kind of practice, what, what are we modeling to the people around us? And so finally, you guys, I know that was a bit uh, long in a recap, but it's necessary. And I hope that's been an encouragement and also had brought some, um, some much needed um, reminding as we are finishing this study. But now we turn to verses seven through uh, 17 through 20, where the title here now is turning or, or excuse me, torn away from loved ones. And this could be very painful for some people. And I, I know the feeling when you've had to be pulled away from people that you love, family members. Uh, my wife and I were very, very involved, very plugged in in our early marriage and early parenthood and also my early ministry with a local congregation that we were torn away from them. Now, God was calling us to go clear across the country to start afresh, to start new for bigger, better things. And I'm thankful as now I look back almost 20 years now when that occurred and seeing God's hand, it's amazing. And honestly say, when you obey God, when you follow his word, he will certainly bless the faithfulness and the obedience. And so here now is we, we're going to see Paul expressing um, some pain. And this is important, you guys, because in one sense, we as Christians, when we are suffering, when someone's trying to uh, attack you, hinder you, persecute you, make fun of you, demean your character, attack you, how you respond in the midst of that, right? And then also the kind of work ethic you have in advancing God's kingdom. Now what we're going to be looking at is how you and I conduct ourselves in ministry when we actually have to say goodbye to certain people. And instead of making that, that situation worse because we are childish or we're immature, emotionally, how do we respond? And that's what we're going to learn in these four verses. So let me start off by reading this. If you have a Bible, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 17 through 20, it says here, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan, here the reference is adversary, he hindered us. But what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming to be present. That literally means like Jesus at his coming to when he comes to be present with us. Is it not you? And then he says here very quickly and in short fashion, verse 20, for you are our glory in joy. All right, let me just say this to start with the last verse and we'll jump back to verse 17. 
Here in verse 20, I want to put this in context. When you look at the congregation that you're plugged into, even if you look at the, the community of Christians and some of the influencers, if you will, the more mature ones that have been walking with Christ longer in your sphere of influence, how many of them, or who are the ones, I should say, do you feel that you are their glory and their joy? How many leaders, my point is, how many leaders express that type of expression, give that type of expression off to you? That's a hard one, isn't it? Because even in my life, I can look around thinking, who, who says that? Now, I was just on the phone with, a, with, a, with an older Christian man who's very well connected, who's been advancing God's kingdom in so many different uh, industries and media and uh, cinema, uh, social media as well, uh, publishing, universities. I mean, it's amazing um, how much this man not only knows of, of the word of God, but how he takes what God has blessed him with financially and all the connections he has. But he was just going to say, man, it's just a joy to talk to you, man. And, and, you know, just, and that's one reason why God has blessed him because he does. He genuinely loves people and he's so encouraging. Sometimes we just want to encourage one another. Like forget what this meeting was about. You know, let's just encourage one another. And so I, I'm just reminded of my friend right now as, as I see that, that you're my glory and my joy. He really expresses that to people like Paul did to the Thessalonians. And so wouldn't it be a blessing to have that in all of our lives, that there are Christian leaders, there are shepherds, there are pastors who feel that about the people there to minister to. So when we see here in verse 17, that Paul, there's a, there's a torn, being torn away from them. What Paul bears here, what he reveals here is some of the pain that he went through because he was, he was forced out of Thessalonica. I mean, it was very disruptful. I remember we were on vacation, taking some much needed time away. And I was reflecting on this new book project that, that, that I was um, starting to write with, with a publisher. And we got a unexpected call from, at the time, my family that was living in New Hampshire and my brother had been diagnosed with cancer and it wasn't looking good. And so we obviously packed up and we left the next morning and we canceled the rest of our trip to go out there and started to sit in on some doctor's appointments with my brother. Sadly, he eventually, a few years later, passed away of cancer. But I, you know, I picture that moment when you're torn away from something because of some type of violence or unfortunate circumstance, or in this case, like my brother. And so Paul, he wasn't planning on leaving he had much to do with these people. There was so much more he wanted to teach them. And he didn't want them to be orphaned. And so he tried many times to get back to them because he was very concerned, you know, with their their state of mind and where they were as immature Christians. Now, that's a stark contrast between how the Jews, remember, treated the Thessalonians. They were trying to convert them back to Judaism. But notice how Paul was loving them and caring for them and, you know, working day and night on their behalf, even working a job as a tent maker. So he was not a burden to any of them, but in the process, my friends, when I, I do want you to consider, as I was saying in the opening, we are oftentimes unaware that some of these activities that we're dealing with or some of this, uh, uh, torn awayness are being separated 
or a wall or a division is brought on by Satan. In this case, it wasn't just you look at the Jews, like it was just the blood related, you know, bodily presence of the Jews in a naturalistic sense. Notice Paul says again and again, he wanted to go to them, but Satan, the adversary, he hindered us. So Satan himself, now more than likely in this language, I do tend to think that it's probably directed by Satan himself, which is very rare throughout scripture, but this is Paul the apostle. And Satan knew that God had his hand. This is the guy on scene in the Mediterranean area. And so as Paul was repeatedly conveying how much he missed the Thessalonians and he longed to be reunited with him, he was dealing with spiritual forces of wickedness that were preventing him from being reunited with the Thessalonians. So what did Satan do? He ramped up. Satan, who's the accuser or the adversary. Satan, who is the great tempter, we're told in 1 Thessalonians 3, 5. Or he's referred to as the devil in Ephesians 4, 27. Or he's referred to as the evil one in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 3. Or the serpent, remember the great serpent in 2 Corinthians eleven three, 3, who presents himself as an angel of light. He's the God of this age, we're told in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He's the father of lies, we're told in John eight forty four. So this serpent, going back to Genesis 3, till we see this dragon in the book of Revelation, he is actively trying to hinder, and the Greek word here is inkopto, which conveys the practice of the military destroying a road so that their enemies cannot use it to advance their strategy. So Satan is actively trying to cut off ways for Paul to get back to to Thessalonica. Well, guess what? It worked in that sense where he time and time again tried to get back to them. Now, eventually he does, but guess what he does? Well, if Satan is cutting off these opportunities, what does he do? He writes a letter. And now we have it canonized here in scripture. Isn't that amazing? So even though Satan was actively trying to thwart God's plans, which he can't, God uses Paul to write. A letter. Now, many New Testament commentators believe that the hindrance that Paul was experiencing had more to do with his health than anything else. Now, I do think that that's partly the case. I think that based on the language here, that Satan, with the word he used here, hindered, was literally cutting off opportunities, whether they didn't have the money, uh, they weren't able to get on a ship, uh, or he was getting uh, some reports of the increase of persecution. Uh, by the Jews. Remember, many of them were following Paul. Um, There are probably at times that they, the people around him were saying, this is not a good idea, so you shouldn't take uh, um, uh, the time, you know, or we shouldn't be strategizing about going back to Thessalonica. Uh, You had to flee because your life was at stake. Now, when you do look at 2 Corinthians 12, 7, not too far from him writing 1 Thessalonians a few years later, he says, this in second Corinthians 12, seven. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to, uh, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now I do think that at this time he's writing this letter that Paul was already dealing with some health issues, but I think specifically Satan was actively trying to disqualify Paul to prevent him. But remember, we've been talking about conduct. But he's above reproach. So Satan can't get him on, you know, a sexual scandal, 
right? Satan can't get him on greed and he's ripping people off because he's working and he's separating the two. So what does he try to do? He says, well, I'm just going to try to uh, prevent him from being able to preach the gospel. And, you, and I want you guys to look at that in your life. Uh, you may be above reproach and all the things that Paul was. And like I said, there's no sex scandal. He's not greedy for money. He's not taking people for granted. He said that. He's not using flattery words. He's not trying to uh, convince them to do things that run contrary or will compromise their faith. So what? What? what's the, the only alternative that Satan has at this point? Well, is to kind of cut off, if you will, to, to blow up, destroy the road. Whatever access that Paul is using to get to them, how can I mess that up? Right? Bottleneck it. Uh, go on a detour whether it be emotional issues, relational issues, or even just flat out logistical issues. I can't tell you how many times on the mission field or traveling to go speak at different venues where there's cancellations, things happen. And oftentimes it is what it is, right? It's like, it's just life. Things, things get messed up, but we can't every situation when this happens, overlook the fact that Satan is trying to hinder us, you guys, from getting to that conference, from uh, you know, going to that marriage retreat or writing uh, that book or ministering to your child or going to that summer camp with your church or going to church on Sunday. But we have to be aware when we're being torn away from loved ones um, that oftentimes it's Satan's attempt to try to destroy the community that we have with people who are like-minded. And then he says here, for what is our hope? or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming. Is it not you? See, what's so beautiful about this is we wrap things up and looking at your conduct and ministries that the crown that Paul's referring to is the, the laurel wreath that is placed on the heads of athletes who are victorious. Now, this is a beautiful depiction of eternal life. It's recorded in 1 Corinthians 9, 25, 2 Timothy 4, 8, 1 Peter 5, 4, James 1, 12, Revelation 2, 10. So what Paul is boasting about is in the salvation of the Thessalonians. That's his legacy. Not that he's going to be the greatest apostle ever who write, who writes almost half the new Testament. No, his crown, his joy are the converted who have a relentless faith amid persecution. Now this coming term that you, you are being found faithful in your conduct before Christ returns. That's the noun that is called parousia, which is the physical return and presence of Christ. And that's what Paul anticipated. That's what he celebrated. That's what he reminded the Thessalonians that we're going to see in chapter 4 and chapter 5. That Christ will return for his church and we are to be found faithful. Now, as we look at the glory and joy that Paul had in the Thessalonians, there were many enemies who were spreading lies about him. And he was getting false reports. And I can't tell you guys, and I'll give you just a little personal insight. When I had people come to me and say, you know, so-and-so who you thought had your back, well, they've been talking about you. Or if I wasn't as excited, if you will, or if I didn't pay enough attention to certain people, they immediately ride me off. Can't tell you how many times that's happened. And so the sad reality is when, when we actually see people for who they are and we give people the benefit of the doubt, 
And when we do look at the people that God has called us to minister to and say, hey, there are people that are trying to come between us. We have an enemy that we fight against. Power and the almighty power of God. And we cannot let our undying affection for one another uh, to end is worth more than anything. That's worth fighting for. And that is the kind of conduct we should have in ministry. And so I encourage you guys, be vulnerable. Let the people know around you how much you care for them, how much you love them. Tell them that you're the, you are my glory, you are my joy. What you're saying is that I have an undying affection for you. You're my legacy. Not, not another success. I don't, I don't have any selfish ambition here. I want to pursue my relationship with you because I don't want to live life without being united with you. That's proper conduct, my friends. So I pray as we end this podcast today that as we looked at First Thessalonians chapter two, there's a lot there, but the essence of it is that you would evaluate your conduct and that you're above reproach and that you do take more opportunity to let people know how much you love them. Thank you, my friends, for listening to this podcast. Until next time, keep standing strong, my friends.